Welcome into the void, a deep dive music podcast into the best classic and current heavy music. And let's meet your hosts, veteran music journalist formerly of Metal Edge Magazine, Dave Manick. Host of the online music show, Listen to the Lord on Rapture Radio, Lord Gates. The music industry insider with the encyclopedic knowledge of all that is heavy, Wild Bill, and our gear guru, veteran musician, J-Man. Hey everybody, we are back here at Into the Void, and uh, it's the first episode since um, since the end of the uh, 2000, the, the horrible, um, you know, the, uh, the, the year that plague year yeah the plague. year that year that we wish the that year that cannot was. be named it's gonna be yeah. there we'll do those little, little Sam Hain. but yeah we are we're we're all looking forward to 2021 I think we're all you know e- waiting in that eager anticipation of um, life getting back to normal so you know with that in mind you know we are uh, we're, we're doing our first episode here of 21 and uh, we're going to be talking about uh, we have a, actually a pretty cool interview with an author named John Wiederhorn. He is a career heavy metal journalist, hard rock journalist, and he has written some books, co-written books with, uh, with musicians like Scott Ian and Al Jurgensen and Roger um, Myrit, and he's done his own books. And um, we're going to be talking to him about his newest book, which is uh, it's called Raising Hell. Uh, and we're going to uh, talk about that here a little bit today. And just we're talking about autobiographies and biographies. Um, some of our favorite musicians have released biographies and autobiographies and I think they're awesome because you learn stuff you learn stuff about your favorite bands that you never heard in any interviews ever throughout their career. Uh, I think they're just a little more forthcoming. So, but before we get to that, Jay, man, you, um, you had a pretty, you know, for those people who aren't from up North. Um, so it's, it's me, it's, it's uh, just before we uh, get too far into this, it's, it's me, Dave Manick and, and joining me is um, our gear guru, Jay, man. So Jay, man, anybody that uh, isn't from the Northeast area, doesn't know Packy. They probably don't know what the hell Packy is, but we call <laughs> what's a Packy and why am I even talking about Packies right now? Here's an interesting fact. There was a uh, study back in 19, I think it was like 84 out of the, one of the sociology departments, maybe at Yukon or, or central or Southern. And it was uh, a per capita package store to, you know, you know, human, the, the per capita. Right. Right. Uh, to the population. Breakdown. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that we all know that Winstead came in at number one and then Torrington was two or was vice versa, but it was kind of fitting because uh, being in the Northeast, um, one of our favorite things to do is to have bonfires and uh, keg parties. And you always need to find a place to get that, that beer, that wine cooler or that liquor. And you'd go to the package store. But because we ended up saying package store so many times in our in our wild youth, it got cut down to a short the short phrase packy. So hey man, let's head to the packy. Really, you're going to the liquor store. You're going to your local purveyor of fine spirits and liquors. And this past Friday, two days ago, our local package store, Kenny's Liquor Store here in Edgewater, was hosting Jesse James Dupree from the band Jackal. He uh, is in town this week because this is the 80th anniversary of Daytona Beach Bike Week. And, um, you know, the Jackal, the whole theme of Jackal's rock and roll attitude, um, the True TV Full Throttle Saloon, which takes place in Sturgis, which is a big biker city. 
and Daytona beach being a big, uh, a big rally point for March for bike week, this being the 80th anniversary is drawing a lot of, uh, a lot of good press and a lot of excitement. And, uh, Jesse James was here in town, literally like less than a mile from my house here. I went down there. He was signing and taking photos, um, promoting his American outlaw whiskey, which is his nice. private label, uh, spirits under the name Jesse James spirits. And so I had a chance to take a picture and he signed a bottle of one of his uh, premier small batches. And, uh, I had a good time just hanging with him. Before we get to our, 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 you know, the main purpose of being here today, I just want to hit a couple of news items from the recent uh, last week or two. There was a, you know, we all, we, all of us who love heavy music, love master puppets. I would like to think, I mean, I don't want to take that for granted, but I mean, you know, Metallica master puppets for me is, you know, and it's hard. It's, it's a tough thing to say, but I, I feel like it's the best heavy metal album of all time. You know, uh, what can you say? I mean, it's master. No, di- um, no disagreements here. That's for sure. Nice. Well, so 35th anniversary. So we, we've talked about this before where we're, you know, I kind of bust chops on people to celebrate like, you know, the 23rd annual or whatever. It's like, come on, you know, 35th anniversary though, that's a milestone. And so master of puppets celebrated 35 years, master of puppets. Did uh, you pl- check out uh, Colbert when they played it that night? Yeah, I did. I did. Yes. Uh, not live, but I did check it out after, um, battery sounded amazing. Amazing. Um, James's voice sounds as strong as ever. Um, you I'm know, the, yeah, I, technically I'm thinking it's the, uh, in-ear monitors because now mm-hmm. he's got total control over his voice and hat and doesn't have to try to feel like he's screaming over his own guitar tone. That's a big deal for, for guys like, you know, the, the, the bands that we love as they get older and let's face it, a lot of the bands we love are guys that are in their forties and fifties and sixties and even seventies. So, you know, those inner monitors have played a big role in these guys being able to extend their careers because they don't, like you just said, they don't have to fight with their voices to, to rise above, um, you know, the, the, the massive stage volume, you know, everything is turned down so that they don't, you know, they're not beating themselves up every night. But to uh, we're we're just talking about you know bands doing you know how how good they sound live and in live streaming. There's a cool live stream at least for me. You know these are guys that are um, they're, they're local guys for where, where I live and where Jay used to live here in the Tampa area, um, in the Tampa Brandon Florida area obituary. You know obituary is one of the godfathers of death metal. They're one of the people that made Tampa the death metal capital of the world because they were leading the charge uh, right here from from Tampa, Florida. So they're doing a cool live stream. They got a couple coming up, um, but the one I'm looking forward to is the one on April 3rd, which is when they're going to do 1992's The End Complete in its entirety. I mean, I remember forcing that album on you like (laughs) when it first came out. I was like, dude, you got to listen to this. I know. know. It was the, the riffs. I mean, the riffs are so heavy on uh, on the end complete. I mean, and those guys are, they may have been a death metal band, but they wrote riffs, man. That's dude, what I loved about those dudes. A lot of groove and mm-hmm. the tone. They were known for tone, you know? Mm-hmm. I, it could be the more sound effect, you know, going to one of the best freaking studios in the country. Just happens to be down down the street from where you, where you live. You mm-hmm. got that as an advantage. So more sound, but I don't know that just the way they wrote their riffs, very groove oriented. Yeah. And it wasn't, um, you're right. It had, it had a bit of a Southern edge to it. Um, or at least a Florida edge. I don't know how else you would describe it. I mean, it's not necessarily Southern it's Florida. Yeah. Maybe Um, it's its own unique thing. And that's why it's the death metal capital. It's right there. 
Absolutely. And they weren't fast all the time. You know, no. you got, they were, they had a element of like doom and sludge. That was um, it. Their sludge effect was kind of the stuff I liked, especially the way they, they came up with their power cords. And I was like, Whoa, that is some thickness, dude. Yeah. So I can't wait for that, man. Um, April 3rd is the end complete in its entirety live stream. Two things I want to mention, just as we segue into our, our topic for today, two autobi- two bio- well, one's an autobiography, one's a, um, a oral history. They're a little bit different, but basically they're nonfiction. So they're in the same category. Uh, so Matt Sorum, former uh, Guns N' Roses, Guns N' Roses drummer, Matt Sorum has his autobiography coming out. It's called Double Talk and Jive, True Rock and Roll Stories from the Drummer of Guns N' Roses, The Cult and Velvet Revolver. That doesn't come out until September, uh, but he is, they're, they're starting to do press about it and mention it. Um, the other one that's coming out that actually comes out probably the time this, this podcast is coming out. It's called nothing but a good time. It's an oral history book of the eighties, hard rock and quote hair metal scene. Um, two authors, Tom uh, Bujour and Richard Beinstock, um, are do, I did this book and it's, I love the oral history books. I don't know about you. I don't know if, what exposure you had Jay to, uh, the oral history books, but you know, it's, it's great because it's just interview after interview, after interview, after interview. And there's not really no, there's no author in between that has to do anything. Um, They just have to kind of put it together and, you know, structure it in such a way that it's, you know, reader friendly, but you know, this is the people who were there in it are doing interviews about it or or, are talking about it. And you're hearing from the people that are in the middle of it. Yeah. So I wanted to mentioning biographies and memoirs and, um, and oral histories is, is our transition into what we want to talk about today, just because we have this, like I said, the interview with John Wiederhorn, which is coming up at the end of the show. John's new book is something I wanted to mention right off the bat. Um, and, and Jay, I hope you have a chance to check it out. I hope everybody does, which is his newest book is called Raising Hell, uh, Backstage Tales from the Lives of Metal Legends. And it's so many of the bands that we love um, and, and maybe, you know, bands that you would be surprised that are on here. I mean, it's everything from popular people like Rob Halford or Tony Iommi to people that like we love, like stoner bands and death nice. metal bands. Like who? And, like, I mean, like we the, sword, the Sword is in okay, there. Cool. Um, nice. Bar- Baroness. There's so many bands and so many current bands uh, like um, I Hate God. So he talks okay. to Jimmy Bauer. Nice. Jimmy. Um, Bauer so power. Nice. You get a real sense of what it's like to be a touring musician in a band that doesn't make a shit ton of money. You know I mean? Let's be mm-hmm. real. These are bands that are touring in vans or, you know, touring Rental buses. buses, that are beat up. buses yeah. with beat up, no brakes. Yeah. So I wanted to um, go back to the first autobiography I ever read of a band. And, you know, I, I guess you could say I started early because I loved Kiss so much um, as we all did. Uh, we've talked about that before on the show uh, that we just loved Kiss so much. And, and I, I ate up anything Kiss I could get my hands on. And then I don't know who gave it to me or how I stumbled onto the book. But there's a book uh, just called Kiss uh, from 1978. Uh, the author's name was Robert Duncan. And um, it's, it's a book about the, the kind of the, the beginnings of Kiss and how they became a band. But what was cool about it was each, there were each member of the band had their own chapter that was somewhat autobiographical. So the book is, is a, a, a mix of a biography and an autobiography. Uh, so each member gets an autobiographical chapter, uh, but then the author kind of puts together the rest of the details of the, uh, of the band. So what, what do you remember is like the first exposure you had to a band, a biography or autobiography, J-Man? Yeah, it was actually when you uh, 
said that you had just finished up listening to um, Red, Sammy Hagar's uh, story. And you had said, hey, check this out. And um, I, don't, I guess that opened the door right there to, uh, to me getting into biographies and autobiographies. And then the Scottian, I'm the man. So that was number two. Gene Simmons, the Gene Simmons story, which is titled... Is that kiss and makeup? Yep. Yep. And then let's see, Paul Manley, Face the Music, Noel Monk, Running with the Devil. Do you consider Noel Monk's Running with the Devil, even though he's like the manager? Do you put him in the music? Yeah, uh, yeah, biography? because yeah, I mean, if you're if you're a tour manager and a band manager, then I absolutely would put that right. under the category because you know he he was there on the road, and and I think that's that's what I what I love about books and for, for anybody out there that doesn't really listen to a lot of or read, I should say, read a lot of band biographies or musician biographies or autobiographies. I promise you, you're going to hear things or read things in a book uh, that you never, stories you never heard before. Um, and in many cases, I, that's because there are like, you know, not NDA, non-disclosures and, you know, an amount, a certain amount of time has to go before somebody like a musician can, um, you know, can talk about certain things. Um, they may have been legally bound to not discuss certain things for X amount of time before a book comes out and, you know, they're, they're able to actually discuss some of those things. So, yeah, I mean, so that, I think, and that, that leads into, you talked about red and, you know, I think that leads into, again, you hear things just for anybody out there that doesn't, you know, really read a lot of band biographies or autobiographies, you will hear things you've never heard before. You'll hear stories you've never heard before. You'll hear about, you know, tours and and other things that were you know really just kind of inside stuff and that's why what's to me that's what makes the best books the best is when people don't gloss over sugarcoat stuff is when they actually have the the balls to go in and talk about some pretty heavy stuff i don't know what you thought about this jay man because you read it too but mm -hmm. in red the chapter that one of the chapters that stuck out to me the most was the chapter where he sammy goes into talking about the 04 reunion tour because it was bad. It was really, really, really bad. And he didn't pull the only punch he pulled was either discussing or um, kind of having an opinion on what drug Eddie was doing. Remember he'd say he'd leave right. the stage mm -hmm. and then he'd come back and his hair would be up in a samurai thing. And he knew that he had just done whatever drug he was doing at that time. Um, and I think as readers were kind of left to wonder, it may have been crystal meth because his teeth were rotting. So it's kind of hard to say. I mean, he, Sammy doesn't, he kind of is careful not to say, like he even says something to the effect of, I'm not going to, you know, say what I think it was, or I'm not going to offer any guesses, but you know, he was clearly doing something, but that chapter stuck out to me. I had no idea. Like I saw that tour mm -hmm. and I had no idea how bad, I mean, the two, the one story, one of the stories he told, and I'll get your comment on this. If you thought, you know, what you thought about this, but remember he, Sammy's talking about how Eddie, um, didn't know the songs. Like when they, when they got together for rehearsals for that reunion tour in 04, he realized right off the bat that Eddie didn't remember the songs. Like, and, and he was just like, wow, like, whoa, you don't even remember these, you wrote these songs. You don't remember right. them. Right. And how many times they've, he's played those historically, those songs, like no muscle memory, no, no recollection of any of that, you know, the formula and, to and, those, to those songs. Yeah. Yeah. Then they go out on tour and it's and it's sonically a disaster, mm -hmm. and it's so bad that the uh, whoever the the sound engineer whoever's mixing the show will take Eddie's guitar and turn it way down in the mix because he's screwing up. 
all over the place. He's messing right. up so bad that mm-hmm. they're like, well, we don't want to ruin this for the fans. So that you can hear the vocals and the bass and the drums, right. Right. but you don't really hear the guitar. And then Eddie would listen to the mixes the next day and he'd be like, what the fuck, man? You're burying my guitar. He'd fire the guy. They'd bring yeah. in another guy and they do right. the same thing. And then he'd right. fire that guy. And it's like, you know, I mean, what did you think when you heard about how bad the situation was with Eddie back then? Well, here's what, here's just think about what you just said about no one had the, the balls to confront Eddie in the fact that, you know, financially, there's a lot at risk, even though he is Eddie Van Halen, there's a lot at risk, but he's so protected since Alex came in and, and laid some law that we, we learned back from Noel Monk. We realized that, you know, you were never going to tell Eddie what to do and you're affecting everybody's performance, the fan experience you affect effectively determines whether you're ever going to have reunions again. You know, no one's got the balls to confront you and you still get to do what you want. There's a lot of deep, deep secrets you get from these stories that like you had said before, whether it's NDAs or not, you, you couldn't talk about it. The fact that this kind of dirty laundry, the dirt is coming out. You're like, Holy shit. This, this explains so much of why the band you love zigged when you thought they should zag. It's all in there. These stories yeah. tell you. Yeah. I mean, and that's just, that was just, uh, and then you mentioned Noel Monk's book, um, you know, to hear, to understand. I mean, I, what, what I liked about Noel's book and then also Ted Templeman's book was I, I actually had a much, I guess a better, um, better perception of David Lee Roth than I had previously. And, and honestly, if it wasn't for those two books, if it wasn't for the Ted Templeman book, especially, and for those of you guys that may not know that, I mean, Ted Templeman produced all the Roth era Van Halen albums as well as he jumped in um, and helped them finish for unlawful carnal knowledge. But, but between those two books, um, I, I, I got a much better um, understanding of who Dave is and also what he meant to the band. And, you know, and, and as much as I loved Eddie, uh, you know, he, you could see some of the issues the band was having because of him um, because he was the genius of the band, but he was also getting way too into drugs and alcohol to the point where the band couldn't function with him on that level of drugs and alcohol. Um, right, so it was right. that, you know, it's, but yeah, I, I love the Noel Monk book. I mean, the guy was there on the road with them. So if you want road stories of Van Halen, I mean, who doesn't want, if you like this kind of music and you don't, who doesn't want road stories of Van Halen? I mean, that's, mm-hmm. those guys were, uh, and the other thing that I thought was interesting about Van Halen on the road is I would have thought those guys were partiers, but only after the show. I mean, do you remember him saying that? Like he said, Van Halen. Yeah. Be pregame. It was on, almost like yeah. uh, be- before the set. Think of it like almost like football. You got all jacked up. You got ready. They didn't let loose until the job was done. And then it was balls out. Yeah. But showtime was business. Yeah. I, I loved that. I mean, I thought that was, that was so cool that, uh, you know, he went, I didn't, I would have, if, if you would have asked me, I'm a huge Van Halen fan. If you would have asked me, I would have yeah, said, thought nah, those they guys were like, partying. Yeah. Exactly. Right. Right. The only exception, but, you know, you is, bring up. Okay. I was going to well, say the only exception to that is um, the, the us festival, the famous, us festival where um you know roth the whole band was trashed and and old talked about it like yeah yeah noel talks about it real real in depth uh to the point where you realize it was such a level of stage fright because these guys were put in front of the largest audience ever the biggest paycheck per show that any band ever ever got and it was all by just sheer will and balls that they asked for the money they did now they have to go do the show. Dude, Roth, he's guzzling liquor straight. 
just to be able to get on stage and flubs <laughs> flubbing all over the place. Oh my God. Yeah. They're yeah. one of the classic lines ever is, um, He's like, he's got the jack in his hand and he's guzzling. And then he goes, the only people who put iced tea in Jack Daniels bottles is the clash, baby. That's great, dude. And I would have thought the whole Van Halen like career was like that, but no, those guys were sober as monks on stage, man. They they were, they were out there to just destroy people. And, you know, and like you said, when they got off stage, that's when the party began. And it definitely began like the second they got off that stage. So what other, I want to know what other, before we get to our top fives, man, I want to know what yeah. other uh, band biography or autobiography really affected you or, or, you know, made you think of a band differently or just one of your, some of your, one of your favorites that just sticks with you. Well, Tony Iommi is going to be my all time favorite just because being able to hear story and being such a freak for, for uh, uh, Black Sabbath. I mean, I've, I knew a lot of the stories cause a lot was out there, but to get his firsthand account, uh, some of the in-depth stuff, more personality based. Um, I think when I, when I think about the stuff that I take away from those stories uh, are the cool, not in the music setting, but it's what this guy was like on the streets of Birmingham. What was Dave Mustaine like uh, in SoCal in the, in the early eighties? It was like the personality side of what these guys were like as, as dudes. That's the stuff I really like, you know, just yeah. as much as uh, any of the, the musical based stuff It's who are these guys? Do you never get a chance? I'm never going to meet and hang out with these guys. I don't know what they are like as people and to hear about the cool uh, idiosyncrasies of their personalities. I think that was pretty wild. When you listen to these stories, you know, I'm getting into it because um, yeah, I want to hear what it was like for Sabbath or, or kiss or, or anthrax, you know, to be on this tour and that tour, or what was it like in the studio, you know, making a particular album but when you listen to the full life of these guys you find out that um, there's something that crosses over kind of certain traits personality traits or even life occurrences that these guys all share it was like they all start with there's an epiphany moment sort of an inspiration you know it was whether whether the beetle they saw the beatles for the first time on tv and they realized i want to do that that is then fueled by their passion, their drive, their determination, a shit ton of luck and fortune, a lot of intuition, a shit ton of risk, some talent. You know, the thing is, all these guys we know as talented musicians, but when it comes down to it, talent's like halfway down the list of a 20-point list of their personal traits that you, know, you have to think, you know, it's the, it's the right kind of individual with the right kind of gumption to go out and do this stuff talent has some to do with it but when you listen to these stories you find out that there's there's moments that guide them from point a to point b these guys kind of had a i don't care about my life and my liberty i'm going to go do this thing regardless of what people tell me and uh a lot of luck because they meet the right guys at the right time and get the right deal a lot of persistence and uh entrepreneurship they're all enterprising guys when you listen to them. these are guys that play they're starting corporations, even though they're saying, I want to play guitar or I want to be a singer. They're kind of really starting corporations. And the band is that corporation, everything that goes into it, that's beyond just playing a riff or writing a song. So- and now the Into the Void top five. Since there's just the two of us this time, that's, that's Dave and J-Man. 
we're going to do something a little bit different. We're going to ping pong it back and forth. So Jay's going to give me his number five and I'll give you mine and so forth. So Jay, what's your number five favorite biography or autobiography of a band or musician? All right. Number, you got it, Dave. Number five, Scott Ian, I'm the man. Absolutely. To hear his, to hear how, man, the grit and determination that dude had to just keep going to see Johnny Z and saying, Hey, I'm ready. Take a listen to this. No, you're not ready. Okay. I'll come back. And he just kept coming back until he had himself a record deal. Yeah. And um, I, that's, that's on true. my, that's actually, you know, what's crazy. My list is so tough. That's, I don't know how that missed my list, but I would, I would, I'll say about that book. And this is what we talked about earlier. How, who knew nobody knew until this book came out, nobody except Kirk Hammett and Scott Ian and James Hetfield mm-hmm. knew that they were just about to kick Lars out of Metallica. Nobody knew that. You know what and I mean? That's crazy. Imagine. And that secret, I mean, the secret basically died with Cliff Burton um, yep. because they were that after that tour, they had, if you believe Scott, and I don't know why he would lie. I don't know what he has to, you know. No, Scott doesn't, he doesn't seem like a guy who lies. He doesn't no. have to lie about anything. No, no. And that's not his band. So what, why, no. you know, and he's famous enough doing his own thing that he doesn't need that. But so I believe right. him. And that's the word is that, that they pulled him aside right before the, the, they were in England, just about to leave for the European dates where, where Cliff lost his life, where they pulled him aside and, and, and you know, it was James and um, Kirk and Cliff and said, yeah, man, you know, we're, we're going to make a big change when we get off this tour. We're actually, we're going to be kicking Lars out of the band. That's pretty wild, man. If you think about what could have happened with Metallica, how things might've been different, you know, I mean, we all, we all sit here and, and discuss how different would Metallica be if Cliff was still alive. Yeah. Um, that's the kind of the, the debate that you can have endlessly. So yeah, my number five, and before I hit my number five, my honorable mention, because it's not really heavy music, but I have to give my honorable mention to the book, I Want My MTV. It's an oral history of the, of the formation of MTV and then the, the, the first several years before MTV, as we know, became a non-music channel when the real world got introduced and everything changed for MTV. But if you want to hear about how MTV came to be, and there are chapters about metal. I mean, there is a whole chapter about Van Halen. I think there's two chapters about Van Halen. There's chapters about Headbangers Ball. I mean, so you know, that heavy music definitely factored into uh, MTV for, for quite a while. I mean, because you're talking about the hairband uh, and metal explosion of the mid to late 80s. So heavy music played a huge part of MTV's programming for quite a while there. But that's my honorable mention. Check that out. I want my MTV. My number five is, and this was a, this man, this was tough. I had three books I was kind of sitting on. The Dave Mustaine book, which I want to mention as well. The Paul Stanley book. Um, yeah, those are on my, those are on my, you know, six yeah. and up. But list. yeah, I know, I know. And, uh, but the one I went my number five, and you mentioned as well is the Tony Iommi book. There were some things I, I mentioned earlier that I, I didn't, I wish was more about the Iommi, which was a little bit more in the, the production stuff, the studio stuff. Um, I would have liked to have heard a little bit more of that, especially as with him being the main songwriter for, for Sabbath. But the stories, I laughed. I don't laugh out loud at a lot of music autobiographies, but my God, I laughed out loud so many times at the Bill Ward stories. I mean, yeah. Tony tells the mm-hmm. best Bill Ward stories. I believe the book is, uh, the audio book is narrated by, um, I believe it's Bev Bevan, who was Bev in Bevan, Black Yes, that's right. And, and he was in Black Sabbath for a time. And he sounds a little like Tony, 
Kind and that's of, another mm-hmm. thing we didn't mention here is that some of these, a lot of these books, um, some of them are, are narrated by uh, the, the people themselves. So Gene Simmons narrates his own book. So does Scott Ian. So does Paul Stanley. With Red, Sammy Hagar, they got a guy who sounds like Sammy, but is not Sammy. With Mustaine, same thing. They got a guy that sounded like Dave, but is not Dave. So sometimes you get the musician to narrate it. Sometimes you don't. But mm-hmm. Bev sounds a little bit like um, Tony. But the funny thing is when Bev, and this is for us nerds that do the audiobooks. He he laughs as he's reading the stories. It's like he's laughing yeah. at <laughs> reading these Bill Ward stories. So and he's True. chuckling and, and right along with him, you're like laughing along with it. So that's my favorite part of the whole book was the stories that made me laugh because there's a ton of stuff that really makes you laugh about Black Sabbath. So what's your number four, brother? Number four, Kiss, the band, the guys that inspired me to play music. Gene Simmons, Kiss and Makeup. Nice. And surprisingly the stuff that I was most intrigued by was how Gene was such a businessman, such a go-getter working in Manhattan, getting a typewriter job, learning how to type. So he gets a job at Vogue so he can take, take advantage of all the business equipment that's in his office at Vogue to make up kiss flyers so that they look shit hot when they put their stuff out in the streets and how cool it was that, he basically said, here, when we design a concert and we're, we're going to have three bands, we're going to make sure that we're going to put in, we're going to put Kiss right in the perfect place so that when everybody shows up to see the band that's drawing the most, they're going to end up seeing us. They're going to think that they're our fans. Dude, the guy was just pulling tricks out of his ass, dude. Guy's genius. Love Gene Simmons. What The only thing that, and it's not that it bothered me about Gene's book, but because you knew his book was going to be about sex. You knew that. I mean, you knew going into it, the Gene's book was going to be a lot about the hooking up. Um, the one nod I will give Paul's book over Gene's book is in Paul's book, you get a lot more of the studio stuff. You get a lot more of the songwriting and studio stuff. Gene kind of glosses over a lot of that. The right. only, I remember he talks a lot about Destroyer uh, mm-hmm. because that was, um, the, that was the album that, you know, Bob Ezrin really challenged them thoroughly in the studio he made all of them step their games up from a songwriting and playing perspective so mm-hmm. um i liked that part of it i just wish gene would have you know maybe a little bit more about the, the the studio stuff and the songwriting and that type of thing um and maybe a little less about it's like dude i get it you banged a lot of chicks i we all know you you bang yeah exactly Ten thousand yeah, chicks you, yeah. awesome for my number four i'm going with with the john wiederhorn book raising hell you could it's the kind of book you could listen to again and again and again because as you're listening to these stories from band to band to band, like you're, you're, there's a wow factor for this story. And then you get to the next story and that's a wow. And there's another wow. And, and you can't believe all this stuff is happening to these bands. And then you can go back and listen again. And you're mm-hmm. like, Oh my gosh, like it, it's still impactful even on a second listen or a second read. Um, and you can bounce around chapter to chapter. It's not the kind of thing that you have to, it doesn't flow like chronologically. So you can kind of bounce back and forth. So uh, I'll give it to uh to John Wiederhorn and Raising Hell as my number four, and definitely check that out. So, J-Man, what's your number three? Number three, this is a story about managing the band, the Mighty Van Halen. Running with the Devil, story coming from the viewpoint of Noel Monk, their manager. Man, so dude, because nobody is more intimate with a band than the guy who's waking, knocking on their door every morning and making sure they're in the hotel every night. He knows mm-hmm. all the stories yep. and wow, what a great, what a great perspective to learn about uh, Van Halen. Absolutely. I loved that book. Um, I, 
I felt like I felt like Noel was probably in a bit over his head when it came to um, having to, to do double duty. Um, you know, for a while there, I think he was doing stage manager and band manager. Mm-hmm. And I think that was a lot to handle a little bit and a lot for anybody to handle. Um, you know, the craziest story was when he, he said, um, remember Eddie was like, there's this girl that was just playing Eddie, like tell, you know, the playing the whole I'm pregnant deal. So mm-hmm. this girl's playing Eddie and he's falling for a hook, line and sinker. And what he doesn't, and it, he, <laughs> poor he thought yeah, it just shows he, a na- it shows how naive Eddie Van Halen was. Yeah, but the he girl was literally just still a kid, and she only gave him a blowjob, and he thought he got her pregnant from. He's like, he's like, can I get, can a girl get pregnant from a blowjob? And and Noel's just like, oh my fucking god, are you kidding me right now? Like this guy doesn't know that you can't get a right. woman pregnant from a blowjob. Like, but that's how innocent and naive Eddie was. He really was. He was just this yeah. sweet, naive, innocent kid a guy you know what i mean like that that just didn't know any better great great stories from the road um from whether it was opening up for black sabbath or you know headlining i mean amazing stories from noel monk Um, yeah i was really amazed at the power play that alex pulled you know i was just like wow i never never would have thought that happened the way it did you know and you know and it sucked that they really just fucked with michael anthony for no reason the nicest dude and like right. Noel said, it seemed like everybody in the band just at one point or another, just, just shat on the guy. You know what I mean? Just because like they were, you know, Dave, Dave is mad at Eddie. So that Dave takes it out on Michael or, you know, somebody else is mad at somebody. So they take it out on Michael and he just sat there and took it, just sat there and took it every time. Didn't speak up, you know, and, Noel, and I think Noel kept saying that over and over again is like, the, you know, I commend Michael for all the shit he took and he never, ever, you know, rocked the boat. He just took it and moved on. So mm-hmm. great book. If you like, and, and because of it, he ends up, I mean, he ends up endearing himself with uh, Sammy Hagar and, you know, reinvents himself in a whole nother light. My number three is uh, I, I've read three books by Neil Peart, uh, the uh, drummer of rush now uh, since past, um, as we discussed on our last show, the uh, year end show, but I've read three of his books. The book I'm, I'm going to point to is, is my favorite of his is a book called far and wide. And it was the last book he wrote. And the reason why I, I love Far and Wide is because Neil, if you want to know Neil Peart, and especially if you want to know why he retired, read that book. Because a lot of people who love Rush, Neil was the guy that just was, you know, he didn't like being out front. He was very uncomfortable with meeting people with praise. He was just an introvert. He did not like that. Um, so you had Getty and Alex who were very upfront and, and out there and talking to fans. And, and you know, you kind of, they were an open book you know, to, uh, to, you know, to use the parlance of our show today, they were an open book, whereas yeah. Neil was very, very closed off. But if you want to know Neil, he's in the pages of his books, and especially in uh, the last book he, he did, which was again, far and wide, he goes into great detail about why he was retiring. And um, if you, if you, again, it's a, it's a get to know him kind of book, and you can really understand who he is in the pages of that book so that's my number three mm-hmm. far and wide by neil Peart. what's your number two j man number two let's keep on the sammy hagar train because that is my next listing sammy hagar red it, granted the guy's got stories of rock you know chicks and money but i think the thing that two things that resonate with me one is his history of being an entrepreneur where he has so he has, he talks about all these other businesses that he's had mm-hmm. over the years and opportunities to spin 
uh, a connection or an idea into something more that fuels his his bank account. You don't, you don't really realize that Sammy Hagar is the the wealthy guy that he is. You just think he's you know the blonde haired kind of SoCal rocker, but there's so much more to him from a business standpoint. And secondly, is the spirituality that occurs from the beginning to the middle to the end throughout the course of the story, how he looks for universal messages and signs and, and how he uses that, those intuitive feelings to make decisions that end up altering his life, but open up doors where people would have saw a closed door. And uh, that's what I took away from Sammy. Yeah. I'm glad you mentioned that um, both of those things, because what I didn't realize about this, before I, you know, I was, I loved Sammy as anybody who knows me knows I've, I've always loved Sammy Hagar. Um, but what I didn't realize was this guy, the serendipity that seemed to follow him in his life. Um, That's it, right. And I'm not going to, I'm not going to make it seem like it was luck because it wasn't luck, but the guy found ways to be incredibly successful by just being smart enough to grasp an opportunity and realize what an opportunity it was. And then he took off with it. Mountain bikes, the guy started a massive mountain bike business. Right, before mountain, underst- before anybody knew what a mountain bike was. Yes, exactly. He, he was like, wait a minute. He, light bulb went off. It was like, okay, want to ride my bike here. There's no bike that does this. I need different tires, so on and so forth. You put a bike together. Next thing you know, you realize there's a, there's a market for this. They open up a small shop, then multiple shops. Then he's like one of the biggest purveyors of mountain bikes in Southern California, just like that. Yeah. Just yeah. because you know he saw the opportunity. Same thing with he gets in the apartment business and then realizes there's an opportunity for spr- he becomes the largest like supplier of sprinkler systems for apartments in Southern California. Like this is what this guy does. And then of yeah. course, as we all know, well, the two things that we we all have heard of um, was the the Cabo Wabo uh, the, the the cantina, which mm-hmm. caused a huge problem with the other members of the band because he made a massive mistake in his measurements of the thing where he thought it was like, I forget. It was like, it was like meters and, and he messed up his measurements and it ended up being built to this massive size. And he was like, Oh my God, you know, this is just, this is awful. Uh, now it's a very successful um, uh, venue, but the tequila, Oh my God, dude, what, exactly. I don't have the, I don't have the, fi- the figure in front of me, but what he sold Cabo Wabo to the Campari group for is mm-hmm. unbelievable. Millions and millions and millions of dollars he sold and, and still kept a small share of. Now he's got the Sammy's, um, the beach bar rum that he's got. But That's I mean, right. this guy is, he is an incredible, incredible businessman and different than Gene Simmons. I mean, I know people, you know, you think businessman and people all of a sudden kind of take it to a negative thing with Gene. Like he's this, you know, and, and Gene will tell you, and oh, Paul actually in his book says it wasn't Gene. It was more, um, Bill Coin. Yes. That he was the guy behind the merchandising that it wasn't Gene. Yeah. Paul so Gene, Gene's really good at just taking credit. Is yes. what he is. He's yeah, the if, master if of taking believe, credit. If you believe Paul and then Paul says it was Bill. Um, and, uh, and I, I don't disagree. I think, like you said, Gene has been more than happy to kind of take, take the mantle of, of being the great businessman when I think a lot of the ideas were bills. Mm-hmm. Um, but with Sammy, it doesn't come across like he's like just this, you know, greedy money monger. He just explored things that were interesting to him and they right. turned out to, I mean, the guy, everything he touched turned to gold. So that's both of our number twos. So now we're on to our number one. So J man, what is your number one? Tony Iommi, Iron Man, my journey. 
what's amazing about Tony Iommi is we know the story of, you know, what, what, what it's like in a steel town, a factory town. We know that he has, he has an accident and he basically could have been the moment that stopped him from being a guitar player, but instead became the moment that pushes him into the new realm. But the funny thing is it's a, it's a buddy of his that talks about Django Reinhardt and says, Hey, did you know there's this famous guy that only plays with two fingers? So you, you figure about connections and cosmic, you know, occurrences. If this guy hadn't said, Hey, Tony, don't get down. Check out this guy. He does it with two. Tony could have just ended up going back to that factory and working the rest of his life there, but he didn't. He, ch- he, he, he dug down deep, got some inspiration, got some gut power and went to work. And that's what I loved about Tony. He's so quiet. You know, you look at him and on stage, you watch Tony, it's all eye contact. He's not saying anything. He's playing his riffs. He's a worker. He's also very introverted, a lot like, um, a lot like Neil Peart, very introverted. For him, the work, being on stage, the music, which is why he kind of got saddled with writing. When everybody else was in, having writer's block and they're going down to the pub, and they're drinking at three in the afternoon. And he's like, damn, why the heck am I the only guy here writing riffs? Well, because guess what? You, you are the only guy here who, who can write those riffs, write those songs. And that's how we got, you know, the great Black Sabbath that we have. But what's incredible is how Tony was the, almost the quiet strongman of the neighborhood. It reminds me how Mustaine was kind of an enforcer when shit hit the fan at a party because he was already, he studied martial arts. It was the same with Tony. If you got into a scrap and something happened, you went and got Tony because he came over and he was bigger than everybody. And I'm sure he probably would go to fists real easy rather than go into words because he's just quite a guy. He probably just punched somebody in the face and they're like, oh, you see here, we better clear out. And he hooks up with the right guys. I think what to, to you know, like you said, he was the, he was the guy that um, intimidated people. He intimidated Ozzy, clearly. I mean, Ozzy was intimidated by Tony from day one. Tony was, I guess, a grade ahead of Ozzy in elementary school. And Tony kind of picked on Ozzy a little bit. So, I mean, you could tell right from day one, Ozzy, the dynamic of the band was, was formed when they were in like elementary school because Ozzy was afraid of Tony and Mm -hmm. that fear um, affected the totally affected the dynamic of black Sabbath because you know, usually one of your, um, your, your uh, alpha males in a, in a band, a lot of times is going to be a singer. So clearly Tony was the alpha of Black Sabbath, but I don't think Ozzy ever even assumed the role of a co-alpha. It was like Tony was always the alpha uh, and Ozzy was reluctant to ex- assume that role because he was very intimidated by Tony. But reading Tony's book made me realize, I, at least if reading Tony's side of it, is that Tony wasn't a dick at all. No, he no. was just he was just the guy that had that, that had to like he kept saying in the book, like I, I had to be the bad guy sometimes because if I wasn't, nobody was going to be. There mm-hmm. was no road manager that was there kind of reining them in. It was Tony that had to say, no, we got to get in the studio. No, we got to get down to work. No, you know, we've got a, we, you know, we've got a gig, you know I mean? It was like, somebody's got to do this. And he's like, it fell to me. So I did it. So if it seemed like I was the enforcer, it was just because I was, somebody had to, and I knew it yeah. had to be me. He's like, yeah. Do you think? Don't you think I wanted to go down the pub with those guys? Of course yeah, I did. He did, but, but damn, somebody's got to get these nobody songs. Was gonna, yeah. <laughs> if I went down to the pub with them, guess what? No songs ever would have been written, or they would have been garbage. Mm-hmm. You know. So he 
he was the guy that, that just bit the bullet and said, all right, you know, when it comes down to it, I'll, I'll be the guy that stays back from the pub and I'll write the songs. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, that wasn't him trying to control the band. It was just, he was the guy that had the ideas. He was the riff master. I mean, he is the riff master. He's the heavy mm-hmm. metal riff master of all time, period, end of story. Mm-hmm. The greatest riff master in the history of heavy music. So my number one is, it's, I, I give a lot of credit to the guy who wrote it as well as the got the band members, because I do think, you know, some autobiographies and biographies, there is maybe the quality of the journalism is affected by how involved a co-writer might be. So in, in this case, a John Wiederhorn writing it with, with Scott Ian, um, the book that's my number one is the dirt, uh, the Motley Crue book, the dirt. So I give Neil Strauss a ton of credit because that book is, that's, that's a, that's journalism. I mean, that is a really, really compelling book and not just because of what's revealed or what's discussed, but just the, the flow of the words. I mean, it's, it's really good. It's a really well-written book. Mm-hmm. And for those of us who grew up in that era, even if you don't love Motley Crue, that book is so good. And the, the movie doesn't do it justice. I don't know if, if anybody's out there has watched The Dirt, the movie. It, like any book, you have to take this much, and my, my hands are like this much, and condense it to yeah. this much. So you have to leave out so much. That's with any book. That's with any. That's true. That's why any you can book never, you can never look a at a movie. Right. Yeah. You always, there's stuff missing. You can't, you can't fit it all. Right. So. You know, and I, and I, there were some parts of the dirt I didn't like the movie, but the book is, man, it is impossible to put down. I remember I had, I interviewed um, Vince Neal and Nikki Six, and it was um, all about, it was like the anniversary of Girls, Girls, Girls at the time. And um, I was also The Heroin Diaries, which is also a good book. The Heroin Diaries by Nikki Six had also just been released. So I interviewed Vince and Nikki, and to prep for that interview, I read The Dirt. And I had it in my office at work and, and I was only supposed to read a certain few chapters, but I just couldn't stop. I couldn't put it down. It, it's just, you know, it's kind of like the first kiss book that I mentioned in the sense that, you know, that each, each guy gets his own chapter. So you get an autobiographical type chapter of Vince and Tommy and Mick and Nikki. So you, you get, each guy has an autobiography within the dirt. And then you have um, all of the other stuff that happens, the formation of the band and all the other things that happen throughout the course of the band's history, the, the, the breakup or Vince leaving and John Karabi coming in, all that stuff is, is laid out in not just great detail, but written so well that it's just a compelling, super compelling read. I'm glad they made it into a movie. It's not horrible. Have you seen the dirt Jay, the movie? Yeah, it's a great, it's a great fun movie to watch just from the perspective of man, what's it like on sunset strip? That's cool. What's Motley Crue like? Yeah. I bet yeah, I, I love that movie. <laughs> Because if, I mean, really, if, if you were going to write a book on any of the bands that were around at that time, uh, Motley Crue to me would have been the band to do it because not only were they one of the very first, because they were, but mm-hmm. they were also arguably the most successful. I mean, you could say that, that Bon Jovi was maybe more successful. Maybe. I mean, there's a debate to be had, but that was a different t- They were coast. I mean, that was New Jersey, New York. Exactly. I mean, bon Jovi was not in Yeah, This, in this was a lifestyle movie. This was yes. 80s Sunset Strip. Absolutely. SoCal parties, you know, yep. and if you clubs, want 80s, the specific yeah. clubs they went yeah. to the Troubadour, the rainbow, um, 
Gazaris. I mean, if you want to know what life was like uh, at that time, it's not like you said, it's not just a book about Motley Crue. It's a lifestyle book about what it was like in the eighties and the sunset strip and the debauchery and just the hedonism, man, that would have been fun. That would have been, <laughs> oh my God. Talk about if you could have dropped me in any book on this yes. list, drop me right. in that book, you know, yeah. but um, yeah. And, that's, not the, that, and not the music side of it. Just get me into that lifestyle. Oh my God. I can't even like, it, it, it doesn't even feel like it's real. You know, I think you think about, you know, you read that book and you think about what happened at that time. And um, I referenced that book earlier um, in the show. We, there's a book that's coming out. that's all about uh, another oral history type book that's coming out. That's, I think it's called nothing but a good time. And it's all about, it's like a deep dive and it's coming out like right now, man, it just doesn't feel like it was real. Like if you think about what life is like today and, and our I know, worlds dude. of social media and cell phones and all that crap. I mean, this was just absolute eighties hedonism, you know, I mean, people fucking in parking lots and getting blowjobs at the rainbow and, and just drinking in bands and, I mean, everybody was like living this lifestyle together in this community of people that all supported each other. There were rivalries, but they supported each other. And it was. Yeah. So it's definitely that, that reminds me of our, one of our early podcasts when we talked about scenes talking about, you know, Ruthie's in San Fran and the thrash scene. Mm-hmm. And this was definitely the, the sunset strip scene, you know, it's a, a movement community, a culture, all bound together and banded together to live this one kind of credo of hedonism. Yeah. So that was my number one book. Jay's number one was Tony Iommi. Uh, that's Iron Man. And my number one is uh, The Dirt, which was written by Neil Strauss uh, and co-written by all the other, the other four members of the band. So coming up next is my interview with um, John Wiederhorn. Again, he gives some really good stories about Scott Ian and Al Jurgensen and, um, and, Judas Priest and all the other bands that he's interviewed throughout the course of his career. Um, really, really good interview with John. Ho- hope you guys all enjoy that. And I just want to thank uh, Jay man for, uh, for being here today and um, we'll be back again soon on into the void. So thank you, Jay man. Cheers, brother. And now the into the void feature interview. For our feature interview this week, we have the, primary author of Louder Than Hell, The Definitive Oral History of Metal, the co-author of My Riot, Agnostic Front, Grit, Guts, and Glory with Roger Myra of Agnostic Front. We also have, of course, I'm the Man, the story of that guy from Anthrax. That's the book with Scott Ian. I did the book with Al Jurgensen, Ministry of the Lost Gospels, according to Al Jurgensen. Uh, He has freelanced for Rolling Stone, Entertainment Weekly, Guitar World, Classic Rock, Loudwire.com, Bandcamp Daily, Yahoo.com, Revolver, and many others. He's the one and only John Wiederhorn. John, thank you so much for coming on, man. We really appreciate it. Sure. Thanks for asking me. Absolutely. Well, uh, welcome to the Into the Void podcast. We, um, I, we're big fans of your uh, writing and of, of the bands that you've covered. And uh, the, the book I want to touch on is your newest one. We'll touch on all of them, but I really want to talk about your newest book, uh, Raising Hell, the backstage tales from the lives of metal legends. Uh, I love the book. Um, <laughs> cool. Well, it's one of those books where, you know, the stories are so good that you can't, I don't feel like you can absorb them all in one sitting. It's kind of like, right. did I just hear what I thought I heard kind of thing? Because <laughs> you go from one story to another and, and the story before kind of builds on the, you know, like you can't, you think you're not going to top that story. 
And then you top it with the next story. And it's like, you know, all these crazy things that you're like, I can't believe um, this, this happened to all these bands. But I think it's for, for anybody that loves heavy music, um, this is a glimpse into the life of what it's like to actually be a touring band. And I think um, I, I've been in a band myself, uh, not to, I didn't never toured, but um, you know, it's one of those things where if you really want to know what life is like as a touring musician and get a, a glimpse behind the curtain, this is that book. So I wanted to ask you, so how did you, this come together? Was this something that was intentional or was this something that you were able to piece together from previous interviews and then you realized you had a book? So how did this come together? Well, when I did Louder Than Hell, God, like 10 years ago now, um, I did that, uh, you know, I co-wrote that with Catherine Terman. Um, I, but I, I had a really interesting time with it. Uh, it was a great way to explore the history of metal was, was to do it as an oral history through the quotes and the experiences of the people who lived it. And as I was doing it, I discovered that, uh, you know, while the goal was to tell about the, uh, the arc and uh, uh, descent in some cases of different subgenres of metal, what I found most enjoyable was the specific uh, anecdotal material we'd get, the backstage type stories, the uh, real stuff that these guys are probably talking around when they're sitting around the, uh, the table drinking beer with friends from other bands. Mm -hmm. And uh, a lot of that stuff is funny. Uh, some of it's kind of filthy. But usually it's, it, I didn't want to throw anyone under the bus. Nothing was malicious. And, and uh, you know, when, when so much of that stuff came out with, with uh, characters like Tony Iommi and Al Jurgensen from, from Ministry and, uh, you know, um, Carrie King from Slayer and Lemmy from Motorhead, all these people we, that, that I talked to for that book, um, I thought, I didn't think about it right away, in fact, actually, but, but uh, I thought, I wonder how, or if there's a way to do a sequel to this or some, you know, spinoff. And uh, then actually doing Louder Than Hell led to getting into the uh, autobiography scene uh, where I, I worked with different artists on their books, which they wanted to put together. So I'd interview them for you know, 25 or 30 hours and, and work it out the material into, into their memoir, basically. Uh, but after I finished the Roger Moret book, I thought, you know, it might be time to revisit the idea of looking into, into another oral history type book. With Louder Than Hell, I talked to bands and discovered genres like thrash and new wave of British heavy metal and death metal, uh, black metal. With this, I wanted to talk about some of the cultural aspects like, uh, you know, the drinking that goes on, mm -hmm. the, uh, the horrible stage accidents that occur, the, uh, the tragic, you know, bus uh, experiences that bands have and sometimes not so tragic but just kind of like crazy and and then also the backstage shenanigans with uh you know sex drugs and rock and roll so mm. when i i got a deal uh my publisher wasn't really down with the 10 commandments thing which was i'd intended would be to be a much shorter book with lots of pictures but he's like no 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 just give me loads of stories and let's call it something else you know maybe like raising hell and my first thought was mm, louder than hell. I don't want it to be confused with that. Mm -hmm. uh, but we we came to a compromise, and we ended up with raising hell, you know, backstage tales from the lives of metal legends um, into the fiery pits of metal. Yeah, then it was just a matter of setting up uh, <laughs> dozens and dozens of interviews, right? And asking everybody I talked to about each category, and I, I purposely 
hand select who I was going to going to talk to for the book based on past experiences I'd had with them. Mm -hmm. Some people open up and tell you, you know, they're really proud of their deepest, darkest secrets. And then some people are really just not, and they, they don't want to, you know, uh, tell anything that they wouldn't want their, their parents to read. You know, I knew, I knew who could tell great stories uh, the people like Rob Halford and people like Lemmy and, and Gary Holt from Exodus is an amazing uh, storyteller. You know, with that in mind, I, I, I knew who would uh, spill dirt and uh, we went there and everyone had a good time. No one was thrown under the bus. It was all done for the sake of uh, uh, celebration of metal. Well, you know, it's um, the guy that stuck out to me and I wasn't familiar really with him. I was familiar with just about 95% of the people in this book I, I listened to. So, cause I'm That's big good. into, you know, heavy like metal and sludge, doom, stoner, black metal, death metal. I mean, all that stuff are, are bands that I'm familiar with. So almost every single band you interviewed, I had heard of before, but the guy that told one of some of the best stories and he was all over the place was King Fowley. I mean, that guy was a, he's a character. I, I was not familiar with him at all before this book, but man, he has some unbelievable, he, that guy, like he almost needs his own book. Cause it's like, how's this guy even alive after all the stuff he's been yeah. through? I mean, it's, so how did you know him before? Like, what was your connection to, to King Farley before this book? Well, yeah, again, it's a case of cherry picking who I talked to, you know, I knew I wanted to talk to people from different genres of metal and definitely death metal. Although he's really more of like kind of a thrash death kind of underground guy. Mm -hmm. um, and I've always liked the band. Uh, they did Fearless Undead Machines. I think that was the name of one of their albums. It was all about like zombie movies. And I was, I was sold and uh, the riffs were thrashy and fun. And it was just a really cool record. This is maybe 15, 20 years ago. Um, so we'd, we'd uh, been in touch with one another and uh, I'd, I'd talk to him and the guy's just an encyclopedia of knowledge about metal mm -hmm. and he's played in like lots of different bands, toured everywhere. And he's really done it on the scale of someone who just gets in the van and goes mm -hmm. and plays anything and, and, you know, does it for the love of it. He's not getting rich doing this. He talked about his sexual exploits in other pieces that I've read. And he talked about uh, this crazy drug experiences. And I thought, all right, if he'll open up, you know, we're going to get some great stuff. Yeah. And uh, and that was really, really one of the goals. I didn't want to do all of the kind of tried and true stories that uh, that everybody know, you know, mm -hmm. like uh, uh, the, the Metallica crash, for instance, right. or Ozzy yeah. biting the head off off of the bat. Uh, you know, there's a lot of metal lore that's uh, that's that's established, and and I really wanted to dig a little deeper and tell some stories that people hadn't heard on behind the music. Absolutely. And that's, I mean, and I would, and we're going to say this on the podcast and I would tell anybody, I mean, if you really like this music and I think uh, I've been in, I'm still in bands and, and, and all that, but it's like I, everybody I know who's never even been in a band still wishes they were. I mean, there's so many of the people in the, in the heavy music community that even if they've never been in a band, man, they wish they had been, or they wish they could have been on a tour bus, or they wish they could have experienced backstage shenanigans. And, and all that stuff is in, you know, glorious detail in this book from all angles. And it's like, it's your actual chance to get a real glimpse behind the curtain of what it's like to be in a touring band. And that could be anything from, you know, Black Sabbath and Tony talking about, um, uh, Ian Gillen wrecking, uh, Bill Ward's car, which inspired the song Trashed. 
you know, yeah, that's great. You're here, Tony Iommi, and those are awesome stories. But, you know, you're also hearing, you know, like you said, King Folly or it's guys from, you know, well, and this is, this reminds me. So before I get too far into this, I have to ask you, because I know what my answer is. What story of all the stories you heard in this book, all the stories that were told to you, what's the one that you remember the most vividly writing, hearing, and then writing it in this book? Can I, can I talk about it on the podcast? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> because, you know, you mentioned it, it would be King Fowley and uh, his crazy story about this girl who wanted to sleep with him. And he's like, nah, I'm not into you. I, I, you know, I, I don't feel like, you know, having sex tonight with someone I don't know. And this girl was really persistent. And he's like, you know, man, I'll, I'll go, I'll have sex with you if you go fuck a chicken. Like, don't have to be real chicken, just chicken parts. Just go fuck a chicken or something. And he's like just being a dick and thinking, ah, you know, that's the end of that. And then this girl comes back with like cut up Purdue pieces of chicken and proceeds to put on a show for him, which is uh, pretty, <laughs> like, no, you're making this up. This is the craziest, <laughs> most bizarre experience. Um, so yeah, I, I would say that's probably the, one of the most graphic sexual stories I've been told aside from what Al Jurgensen has told me about his misadventures in uh, depravity land. Um, but but the thing that actually took me by surprise the most, and I'd never you know heard of it, wasn't one of my favorite artists at all. Uh, you know, it was, it was the bassist from Limp Biscuit, who mm -hmm. for some reason chose our interview to reveal that he almost died from uh, liver disease mm. and had to have a complete liver transplant. And this had not been in the press almost a year later. Mm -hmm. I'm like, dude, what? this is, you know, this is really serious shit. And it's, and your story is really amazing because uh, he was able to get uh, a, a liver after having one rejected. And uh, then, so they, they, basically he's at death's door. They find a, a donor. And then his, his uh, I guess she's his wife because they've been together for more than seven years, but uh, who's, who's a porn star. Um, who had helped her father kick heroin um, was able to pretty much nurture him back to health and keep him off of alcohol because um, he had had treatment for alcoholism before uh, and he just kept drinking because he's like, well, I have a bad liver. What's the point? Fuck it. I'm just going to, you know, I'm just going to have a good time. And uh, he was able to stop drinking, you know, and, and I, if you don't like the bass, fine, but, but I think something like that, you've, you've got to, you know, you, something like that, you've got to get props to when they can can uh, you know defeat a demon like that the story that the story that and i'd heard of this story the baroness bus the bus crash the baroness bus crash mm, so i'd yeah. heard i'd heard about that but not i mean when he I, I swear i i've listened to that story three times that i could listen to it more because the way he tells that story is so visceral when you when you're yeah. like you know he's like every second felt like a minute you know and, and um and then you look at the bus driver and he and he's like, you look him in the eye and you're both saying goodbye to each other. And it was like in that, and, and all of it happened in slow motion, like people saying goodbye and coming to grips with dying and all of that. And it's like, wow. Like, and then him talking about how injured he was and, and just that, that story, like I, that just, that stuck with me. Cause I'm like, that's, it just felt, you could almost feel like you were there because he was describing it in such great detail. Um, so that's, but it seemed like that was more, he gave more detail than what came out in the press. It seemed like, cause I just remember a vague uh, thing about the Baroness bus, cra bus crash, but I didn't hear much more than that. Did he give mm -hmm. more detail than you had ever heard before? 
Well, I'd written about the Baroness bus, cra bus crash and talked to him about it for okay. a ma magazine article I'd written. But this, you know, when I talked to him, I'm like, John, you know, if, if you don't want to talk about this, that's okay. But if you do want to go there, I, I'd love to hear, you know, the whole thing soup to nuts, no censorship, like not, not, not censorship, but no, 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 dead, no, no uh, limitation, word limitations, you know, like if you could tell me what this felt like, what it, uh, you know, what you were thinking, um, if it was painful, if it wasn't, like what caused the accident. And, you know, I'd, he just went there. He, he, mm. he, I, I almost didn't have to ask follow-up questions, but then when I did, he'd go even deeper into the, uh, the experience and it's, it was harrowing. It was, uh, I love, I love that guy. I love that band. It, it was, uh, yeah, I, I, that was a harrowing story to, uh, to write about. I didn't bring that up before because it's like not one of the fun stories you're reading. No. Yeah, you're right. It, it isn't, but it's like it's almost like because I'm a big horror fan, and I'm like, oh my gosh, this sounds like a real life horror movie is what they experienced. I mean, yeah. I, I can't even imagine. Um, but yeah, I mean, you're, you're right. I mean, there's I, there were chapters I laughed out loud, um, and and that's what's great about this book is it, it it's the whole emotional spectrum. Like you can hear people almost dying, and then you hear people trashing hotel rooms and people you know having sex with girls and groupies and you know the whole depth like the satan chapter and like you know and all that stuff so that you've got all kinds of great stories and i love the fact that you start each chapter with the name of a song so you know die with your boots on or highway to hell those are the, the couple that i just listened to but like each chapter starts for anybody who hasn't read the book yet each chapter starts with uh, it's the name of a popular song in metal from a popular band and so john will go into a little bit of explanation about the history maybe of the song and the band and then that carries into the chapter so was that an idea you had early on was that sort of a carryover possibly from the initial idea about the commandments well the idea of the commandments was to start with a very dramatic uh overdone you know biblical style uh right up for for each of the commandments and you know thou shalt not do this because thy blah 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 and when that didn't work i thought well you know what how are we gonna set off each of these chapters i'm like okay it makes sense to use a a, a song title or in, in one chapter an album title um and then i didn't want to just go cold into the uh into the chapter so i thought it might be kind of cool to do just a little description of of the song or the importance of the album if people hadn't uh hadn't you know Heard of it and uh it just kind of flowed naturally really that was i just thought it was i didn't want to just have i've, I've read all history books that are literally just quotes there's no mm. text right and and uh i i wanted to break it up a little bit mm -hmm. yeah i thought i thought it flows very very well and my only complaint about the oral history louder, louder than hell is where's the audiobook like <laughs> it was too long it oh, was really yeah, the damn book came out at, uh, I think it was 750 pages, which is why a lot of countries wouldn't, uh, wouldn't translate it into their language, because say you, you take an American book and put it in German, well, the German language is more verbose than, mm -hmm. than English. So then you end up with 15% longer in page-wise than what you had in, in your, your American edition. So mm -hmm. people didn't want to do a thousand page books. And uh, the same thing happened with audiobooks. Unfortunately, I really wish I would have loved, my dream was to be able to do that as an audiobook, but with the artists telling, you know, the ones that were surviving, like yeah. maybe like five to 10 really established guys, but the budget would have been too high and it just mm. would have taken too long. So sadly, that's not, uh, and HarperCollins, if you want to do that still, 
(laughs) (laughs) I hear there's a good market for audiobooks. What was cool about, and we'll get into I'm the Man too, because it was great that Scott, and you don't get that very often, but Scott does his own book, Mm -hmm. uh, does the book that you did with him. So it's, I think it adds, adds something. Because you're sure. hearing the the author's words and his voice at the same time. So were you um, were you did it were you excited to hear that he was narrating his own book? Was that kind of because I think that gives a little extra punch to the audiobook at that point? Yeah, I thought that was really cool. Uh, originally, Al Jurgensen wanted to do his own book too, until they couldn't come to agreements as to where to record it and how much to pay him for it. And I think he wanted to do this grandiose production with lots of sound design. Um, and it kind of put the kibosh on the project, which was a bummer. Uh, but yeah, I mean, Scott's, Scott's great. And he, he's a very charismatic guy. And, you know, you, you see him on every TV interview about metal that's mm-hmm. you know, ever airs. So he, yep. he yeah, he's he, that guy, like, just like the book says, he's that guy from Anthrax. Like he's <laughs> like, they think like the people that don't know the band, like you must be the singer because you're the only, you're the guy from Anthrax that everybody associates with the band. Like you're the guy from Anthrax, right? So yeah, totally, totally. I, I like all those guys, but it must piss off Charlie sometimes because Charlie does an awful lot of writing for that band. Yeah, and an awful he's, lot he's the song. I mean, drummer and, yeah, and Scott are the two forces of it. But, uh, but then that's not fair to Frank because, uh, He's been there a long time and he does his, his thing too. Uh, yeah. And Joey, thank God he's back and his voice is great. Uh, oh, it's, but it's, he has no problems with not writing the songs. He's just like, yeah, give me this and I'll sing them. There's so many twists and turns with that band. Um, and a lot of the stuff maybe people didn't know. And I'm sure and I want to ask you about that. So how much did you know going into that book uh, about what happened with Anthrax when it came to the John Bush era and what happened with Electra and how they really got screwed over like again and again at every step of the way from the time where Electra basically just wanted nothing to do with them after the new people came in when they released um, Sound of White Noise. And it's like the new group of people came in, didn't want anything to do with them. So how much did you know about that situation before you heard Scott you know, tell you about it? I mean, I, I've been following the band as a fan since Fistful of Metal and as a journalist since Among the Living, really. So, I mean, I've, I've been pretty tapped in to what's going on, at least what, they're tell- what they've told to the press. I've interviewed everybody a bunch of times. Um, and actually, in fact, Scott, well, I, I was the editor of Headbangers Ball blog for a while uh, at MTV before they, I don't, I don't think they still do it, um, which is too bad. But uh at, at one point, uh, I was having artists write, uh, you know, guest essays. And Scott wrote this really cool uh, essay about his experience, his first experiences with alcohol, um, which started when he was a really young kid. And he was a dabbling, you know, he wasn't like hammered, but they were like drinking out of flasks on the school bus. Mm. Um, I was like, man, you know, you, you, you can write. And I, I'd love it if... Uh, you know, you'd consider doing something for, for Louder Than Hell. Like, would you want to do the intro? And he's like, yeah, that sounds cool. Let's, let's talk about that. And he's like, you know, I, I don't know what's right. I don't, I was like, well, let's just talk, you know, let, let's, uh, let's talk about your, how you've gotten to metal, your, your history of it and, and bring it together in a way that will encapsulate kind of the whole experience of being a metalhead. So, uh, he's a very talkative guy and, 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 uh, very articulate. So we, we talked for a while and uh, his words were almost translated pretty, pretty directly. I mean, it was really, 
he was uh, very, very clear and, and he wasn't rambly with what he wanted to say. So his, his uh, story was a great intro for the book. And that's what led to me doing a book with him afterwards. Cause I, I, I ca called him and I'm like, uh, you know, what do you, what do you think of the, of, of the intro? Um, Cause I wanted to have it approved before, before I went into the book. And he's like, it sounds like I'm saying it, man. Like you, you wrote it, but it, it sounds like it's coming out of my mouth. Mm -hmm. I'm like, well, dude, most of it is coming out of your mouth. <laughs> and that's where I like to write is to capture the, the essence of, you know, the person you're writing about. Um, no book can be a transcript. It shouldn't be. Mm -hmm. And there are some creative liberties that a writer takes with the subject matter that one is given in adding, you know, uh, different adjectives or metaphors or, or, you know, putting, putting imagery together. But I said, would you ever think of doing a book? You know, do you want to tell your story? And he's like, I have been thinking about that. Let's, let's, uh, let's talk about it. Let's, and then we, it worked out we did it. So Louder Than Hell got me books on both, uh, both Scott and, and the ministry book came out of, came out of that, which was, uh, you know, pretty rewarding. So, um, so I want to go back to that, but before we hit your first foray into books, which was Louder Than Hell, I want to just go back to the beginning. So when did you first know you wanted to pursue music journalism and how did you start your career? Because, you know, as somebody who also tried, it's, it's a tough racket, not easy. Um, and, and especially, it certainly isn't now because there's almost no music magazines, as we all know, there's very few, yeah. um, you know, probably a fraction of what was there around the eighties. Um, well, there were the eighties, uh, the nineties was a beautiful time. Yes. Absolutely. There were lots of alternative ma magazines, metal magazines, guitar magazines, you know, kind of artsy magazines that still wrote about music. Yeah. And it was, uh, music was flourishing. The alternative era brought in such a, 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 a confluence of culture that, uh, that music was a huge thing. And it was, uh, it was a fantastic time to, break into the business writing about Nirvana and, and uh, Metallica and, you know, Slayer all at the same time. And then this, you know, on the flip coin, I, I liked a lot of the stuff that was coming out of Britain. So I was writing about the Stone Roses and, you know, it's not metal stuff, but mm -hmm. uh, I, I, uh, I just think it was a great time to break in. Mud Honey, all these great bands. When did you know you wanted to pursue music journalism and, and how did you kind of, how did you pursue it? Like what, what were your steps to get to that point? I was a journalism major at uh, Boston University and a, a huge metalhead. And uh, I tried playing in a couple bands and never really got past the rehearsal room, although we have some demos. But, uh, you know, I lo always loved music and have a, a basic understanding of how it comes together. So, you know, I, can, I could write about uh, the process of making music as well as being in a band. Um, so I wrote for my college paper, like everyone else. Mm -hmm. And then I did an internship abroad, which was the big, uh, big opportunity. I went to England with a, a Boston University semester abroad program. And um, they hooked us up with internships in the city. A lot of people were at different magazines or PR sites, uh, companies or websites. Uh, not websites, because this wasn't even really, the web wasn't around yet. <laughs> <laughs> But uh, it's funny because I went into my peer advisor and they said, well, you know, we've got we've got an opening at History Today magazine. How does that fancy you? Do you think you'd like to do that? I'm like, oh, my God, history. I mean, I like history, but I, I, I was not, you know, not the kind of guy who is a poli sci major. Or I said, well, I mean, that's great. And I really appreciate it. But is there 
anything in the music sphere? Is there anything like Kerrang, you know, or, or uh, yeah, Sounds, any of those magazines? I'd love it. If not, you know, that was just fine. And they call me in the next day. They're like, well, someone's already working at Kerrang, but how'd you like to work for Melody Maker? Mm-hmm. And Melody Maker was a weekly. Mm-hmm. Uh, Melody Maker, Enemy, and Sounds were the three big weeklies, and they're all gone. Um, but every week they'd put out a magazine and it was just filled with feature stories, artist interviews and, and re- live reviews and, you know, album reviews. And uh, I worked on the news desk and they very quickly let me do some, some freelancing for them because they had pages to fill every week. It wasn't like they could only assign a certain number of stories. So no one there like metal, you know, <laughs> and uh, they thought it was amusing that I did and the kind of metal I liked was just kind of cool enough for an alternative magazine to write about, like Grindcore that was just starting to come out of England, uh, Napalm Death and Carcass and you know the, the, the bands from Eric Records. So um, I, I did some writing about them and interviewed Faith No More. And uh, then when I got back to the States, they let me string for them. So I kept writing from uh, first DC, then New York, reviewing concerts mostly. But that opened up a lot of doors uh, for other other opportunities at the, the time to write for Alternative Press and Raygun. Alternative Press is still around, uh, Raygun isn't. And uh, it was just a slow building process. Um, I had my shit jobs on, at, at the same time. You know, mm-hmm. I'd have to have a day gig for oh, a yeah. long time. Yeah, we all do, uh, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And then, you know, it, fortunately it, I was able to build at the point where uh, I could I could get by on on just the the freelance articles for the the numerous magazines that were around at the time, and it was it was a godsend. I mean, I, at the time, I would have uh, done what I was doing for free. I loved it, and uh, it was a great it was a great time to be in in the entertainment field and with music, and uh, it led to jobs at MTV and VH1, Rolling Stone, and uh, those were all really good experiences. When did you decide to write Louder Than Hell? And what was the kind of starting point? Like when you said, this is what I want to do with this book. So what was the goal of Louder Than Hell? It's actually funny. I got a call from an agent who, who sadly is uh, uh, no longer uh, with us. He passed away last year. Uh, Jim Fitzgerald, who's this real cigar chomping character that had worked with uh, members of Hell's Angels. Like um, I'm blanking on the guy's name, but one of like the absolute legends. Um, and, and had um, done books with characters from, uh, you know, a, a different, I guess he, just, he just did all kinds of stuff. He did lots of counterculture uh, stuff, did music books in the, in the punk era. And uh, so he was tapped in. And uh, somehow word had gotten out that Judas Priest wanted to do a book. So uh, he had gotten my name, I guess, through, you know, maybe a reference uh, someone someone referred him to me from stuff that they'd read that I'd, I'd done about metal because I was writing a lot about metal in places like Rolling Stone and in MTV, you know, whatever metal was at the time, whether it was Limp Bizkit or whether it was Stained or mm-hmm. or Slipknot. You know, and Slipknot were, I think, a big force of yes. the comeback of metal. Absolutely. absolutely. Uh, but uh, so, so he said, oh, you know, I uh, hear Judas Priest wants to do a book. How'd you like to do it? I'm like, Pfft. How'd I like to do it? <laughs> yeah, just show me the, uh, show me the, the, I don't even do contract. Yeah, let's, let's do it now. He's like, okay, okay, right, right out a proposal. I'm like, oh, okay, what is this proposal thing in, involved? I mean, I was green. Mm-hmm. I, had, I, I had thought about doing books, but I was keeping so busy with, uh, with magazine writing that I hadn't 
hadn't gone there yet. Um, so I did a proposal and they gave it to uh, you know, priests uh, uh, management, Jane Andrews. And uh, we got a, a very polite answer that uh, priests have decided that right at this moment, they're not interested in doing a book. And uh, it was kind of a disappointment, but he's like, well, you know, I still think we can, we can work out on something. Um, you know, there was this great, great book I worked on uh, with this, this writer, Legs McNeil. I don't know if you know him and he, he was with Spin Magazine. I'm like, oh yeah, of course. I mean, I've read Legs stuff. He's, he's, he's great. It's like, well, he did this book called uh, uh, Please Kill Me. I'm like, yeah, I love Please Kill Me. It was an oral history of punk rock. Mm-hmm. He's like, exactly, exactly. Well, I think it'd be a great idea to do something like that about metal. And so I got to give Jim credit for kind of pushing me in that direction of, of telling it. Cause there were great books about metal. You know, there were history books that had been written from the perspective of a journalist writing about the, you know, but not a book that was entirely out of the mouths and experiences that, that uh, had, had gone on, you know, with, with these artists. Um, so that's what would inspire me to, to put it together in that, in that fashion, uh, sort of based on, uh, please kill me as as most oral histories of music have been a uh, book i'd highly recommend by the way so you uh were approached about writing this book and then you started to dive into writing the book and you, i know you did it um was with Catherine. that she she assisted you so how, how did you guys decide how that was going to get broken down and who was going to do what and how did it all come together well it's interesting Catherine was the editor of uh, rip magazine which mm-hmm. was a magazine um, oh, yeah. that larry flint owned it yeah, was, Lon Friend, of course. Yeah, Lon Friend was the uh, I think Lon was the, was the editor in chief, and Catherine was the edit, editorial director or something. I'm not sure what the, her title was, but she assigned me, you know, stories for it, and uh, we developed a friendship. She was in LA, I was in I was in New York, and um, then sadly, when when Rip went under, um, we were both still writing for different places, and I got a gig um, at Guitar uh, Guitar Magazine. And I, I said, you know, if I don't, I know you're not a guitarist, but I know you know how to interview bands, and I'd like to do pieces for the magazine that are more personality based than playing based. And she's like, yeah, that'd be really cool. I'd love to. So I got her to get on board with writing for for uh, us when I was uh, when I was executive editor over there. And it was fun, funny. She did a piece on Slash, uh, and I, I got uh, the the idea to have Slash give a guitar lesson to someone who didn't even know how to tune a guitar or, or, or play, play an E chord or anything. So um, he was trying to show her the basics. And then she wrote about this experience of Slash trying to teach someone who had no virtuosity or musical talent whatsoever. Uh, and it, it was meant to be kind of a fun tongue, tongue in cheek article, but it came out really well. And I think it further cemented our friendship. So then she came to New York to work for Alice Cooper on his radio show um so we ended up you know as closer friends and and socializing meeting at shows or whatever and uh when i did louder than hell or when i was was offered louder than hell i was like wow this is this is a massive endeavor you know legs with neil had 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 someone he he co-wrote with and what what do you think about the idea i asked my agent of of putting pulling someone in to, to work on it with he's like well if you could find the right person then i think it's a great idea you know, because then you can both work on your own specialties and because it's very hard to encompass metal from the 60s to the present and be an expert on all of it. Mm-hmm. And I like some hair metal, but that was Catherine's thing that like she was on, you know, Sunset Strip and, and knew the whole Hollywood scene and gone to Gazaris and all these places. So um, 
he said, great, you know, she sounds, she sounds perfect for it. And uh, what followed was a, a four year love and hate relationship <laughs> um, that, uh, you know, uh, we're still good friends, but uh, some points I think it almost killed my marriage. <laughs> my wife was like, I always work out that goddamn book. And we turned it in because we had an abundance of materials. You know, we both interviewed, there were hundreds of people interviewed in that book. I think we had 200 something. So we were just writing everything, transcribing it. We had intern transcribing for us. And we, this is our, both of our first books. So knowing that we want a chapter on every genre of metal and we wanted to include grunge and we wanted to include crossover and industrial. So we, we turned in, I think 12,000 or it was, it was 1200 or 1500 pages. It was just insane of type pages. And uh, my editor uh, had a sense of humor. He stacked it uh, from the floor to against the wall and put a, a yardstick against it and said, you've given me five, you know, three and a half feet of material. You've got to go back in and cut this in half. Uh, oh, wow. I'm like, oh my God. Oh, no. like, so it added another year to the project. Oh, yeah. Um, and, and it was, it was you know, gut-wrenching to kill stuff from the book, but mostly what we ended up doing, we slashed a couple chapters, but we also killed that, uh, a lot of the stuff that everybody already knows, how bands get together, who met who where, what mm -hmm. happened. So we, we, we addressed that stuff, but in a, in a really uh, skeletal way. And then we went into what happened once their album started started uh, uh, you know, resonating with their audiences and, and their lives started changing dramatically. And you know, they became what they always wanted to be. And in some cases, it's a be careful what you ask for situation. There's so many of these people end up in that you know, cliched uh, uh, treadmill of, of alcoholism and, and drug dependency. Mm -hmm. uh, so many, I, I, I was a little surprised. I, you know, of course you watch behind the music and you know this goes on. But um, I was I was surprised just how much of it was uh, really serious. It's like that you don't hear about from like some of your favorite bands probably had alcoholics in them. I did want to ask you a question about the voice because I think that's important for people that, to understand. So how is that a challenge? Was it a challenge for like for Al's book, for Scott's book, for uh, for Roger's book? Were, were any one of them more of a challenge to capture their voice in writing? I think. Uh... A lot of it comes down to spending time with them and and getting a feel for their personalities, because if, if you know the way someone speaks and you have it on tape and you know their cadence and their flow and their vocabulary, then you can work with what they give you and then build upon it in their in their words or in in, in the way that they would speak. And then, of course, you, it goes back to them, and you're like, dude, if you don't like any of this, if it doesn't work for you, like, tell me. And fortunately, all, all three of those guys were really happy with the, the way I'd captured what they were, what they're saying. Scott actually had more input. Uh, he did write some of his, some of his entries, or first he'd tell me what he wanted to do, or you know, what, what, what was going on. And then when he looked back at it, he'd, he'd tweak. And, and, it, and that was great. And it, it was fine. And it put things more in his voice a little bit. Al was... <laughs> a fascinating jigsaw puzzle of uh, surreal proportions. Um, he was 
you know, he, he was uh, clean at the time, but I can't say he was sober. He was, he was drinking mass quantities of wine mm-hmm. and uh, is incredibly lucid when he's drunk. Although sometimes he'll tell you the same story, you know, at five minute intervals. Mm-hmm. But um, he didn't want to tell a story that would be the chronology of ministry. And I, the book needs to have some sort of a beginning and has to you know, flow in a way where you learn the, uh, the history of this band. So when we started talking about specific records or going into history, he'd, he'd just get bored and turn off. And I'd be like, all right, man, tell me a story about Gibby Haynes. Ah, Gibby Haynes, man, you know, fucking hell. We, 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 got, we went in in the studio, man. I did 20 hits ass in. We were doing Jesus to, to build my hot rod. And it was just, you know, he was on. That's, that's where he was in his element mm-hmm. when he was a storyteller. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, he's Uncle Al, the great... Uh, you know, sit on my, well, not sit on my knee, sit on my knee, little girl, and let me tell you a story. Um, but yeah, so he would just weave these wild tales. And, and uh, you know, having been addicted to heroin for 15 years or, or, or so, he had lived it. And mm-hmm. he was doing, there were times he was injecting himself, you know, 15 times a day. Wow. And it's tragic, but it's part of what he was doing and the creative impulses that he had during these periods did stem in part from the kind of life that he was living, you know, and his experiences with William Burroughs and Tim Leary were very much triggered by, by drug use. Mm -hmm. So there was an awful lot of that, but when you are dealing with someone who comes from that world and he's also just such a a creative guy, he doesn't like to stay on track. Mm. Um, but we were able to talk about things that happened in every era of, of ministry and his childhood and he just mountains of fantastic stories. And then I went on the great, uh, great research trip to, uh, to put the puzzle together and, uh, and, and, and make, make some sort of a timeline. And we had to go back and forth a couple times, but uh, you know, he was thrilled. He, he, he loved it. And uh, that was a great compliment to me because he appreciates really good, I don't want to say it's art, but uh, creativity. Yeah. Um, and he's a reader. You know, he's not one of these guys who's just like, yeah, I'll tell you a bunch of stories and I, and I don't read other books. So it really doesn't matter. You write it and say it's, it's me, um, which happens an awful lot, you know, with, with the ghostwriting autobiography thing. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was, that was an honor. And then, and then Roger Moret, I just, he's a guy, you know, he's, he, I have so much respect for him as a musician and a motivator and a scene creator Mm -hmm. and just this figurehead of hardcore metal. Mm -hmm. Uh, Well, hardcore metal, but but also New York hardcore. Yeah. And um, he, uh, he was great. And and he'd never talked about his abusive childhood before. Never. Mm. And he just, it was hard for him to talk about but I was patient with him and, you know, he was understanding. It's, it comes from trust, you know? Once you have someone's trust and, and they're pretty convinced that you're not gonna screw them over or that in no way are they jeopardizing anything since they have approval on all of the, all of the, uh, the text any, anyway. I, you know, I always work with people giving them, them uh, a, t- a manuscript approval. Mm-hmm. Um, so they can cut anything um, or add extra things after the fact. 
And yeah, so Roger just told me these gut-wrenching stories of a really abusive childhood. And then these crazy stories about how when he was running drugs and got busted and went to jail for a year and a half. And he never talked about prison before. Mm -hmm. So those are two really uh, poignant things that I, I got out of working, working with him. Uh, and I think he, it was a cathartic experience for him. Um, and I mean, we never had a difficult or, or um, harsh moment. I mean, it, it was no friction doing that book. Mm -hmm. uh, it got drawn out a little bit because we both had personal issues we were dealing with. But, uh, you know, we, the hardest thing was finding a big record uh, book company that wanted it. And unfortunately, we, we couldn't get a major, major deal. Mm -hmm. So we ended up going with a, a, an independent book company that really understood the, the, the book and his importance and wanted it. And um, it was more of a labor of love for both of us on that level. So Scott Ian tells the great story about Al Jurgensen and Eddie Vedder. Did Al, did you get the same story from Al or did you only get that story from, I would be interested to see if you got the same story from two different people and, and how it played out. Cause that's the story where Scott says that Al told him that he drove Eddie Vedder around Chicago or something, cranking stormtroopers of death on a stereo and driving like a madman through the city. And, and like, and then, and then he guess he gave Eddie the tape and he got out of the car. I forget. I think that's the story. The one story they had in common, which was hysterical to me was when Scott went on Al's bus for, I, I think a week or two. Uh, when I'm not even sure if Anthrax was on the bill, uh, but he went and toured with Ministry and went on stage with him every night and played mm -hmm. Supernaut and uh, got to sort of experience Al world. And, you know, Scott likes a good drink like all of us, but uh, he, can't, he doesn't even smoke pot. Like actually when he did, uh, he felt like his, his mind was literally caving in. And the one time he, he uh, did uh, mushrooms, he almost jumped off of the balcony. Mm -hmm. So, you know, he's hardly the, uh, the hard lifer. Right. Um, but he's going on the, the bus with ministry and Al's shooting up all the time. And there's this one story where Al's uh, with some girl and he's not using a condom or something. Pretty sure that was it. He didn't, he didn't have a condom and he had sex with this woman. And suddenly he freaked out. It's like, oh my God, oh my God, I'm gonna get an STD, I'm gonna get AIDS. And uh, they had a stack of pizzas there. So Al runs back to the stack of pizzas, opens it up and pulls this hot cheese and tomato sauce uh, and rubs it all over his junk. And he's like, the, the, the tomato sauce kills all the viruses and bacteria, right? Come on, the tomato sauce will kill everything, right? It, it, it's, it's an acid. And Scott's like, yeah, I think they will. I think it would. <laughs> Scott sure. told me that story first. And oh my God. I died. I, I was like, this is amazing. And I went to Al, I was like, is this true? And I was like, yeah, it is true. I don't even know if he remembered it. But so he told me, you know, I, I told him what Scott uh, said and, and he embellished upon it and said, you know, his version of the story. So that one little uh, anecdote ended up in both books. But um, nice. it was... Uh, yeah, it was it was funny. It was a wild ride. Uh, Scott was a lot of fun. It was a lot more. I mean, he had a great he has a great story to tell. And I think I think he's a really amazing, uh, you know, figurehead for metal. Yeah, um, absolutely. And, and, in, and especially, you know, he's this he's, he's the loudmouth. Like we said before, he's the rhythm guitarist and the yeah. lyricist. Yeah, that's super important. But, you know, while he helped build the foundations of these classic songs, 
he was not the guy, you know, running around singing about Indians and wearing, you know, the, the Indian garb. Right, yeah. Yeah. And it's funny yet. And, and yet um, he's almost become the figurehead of metal, you know, even more so than like, cause you know, James is not going to ever be that guy and right. nobody else. And it's a Lars to a degree, but he's not, Lars isn't the guy that the community rallies around. If anything, he polarizes the community because there's a lot of people that don't like Lars in the metal community that blame him for just about everything that's ever gone wrong with Metallica. Lars somehow gets to blame. What I love about Metallica beyond just their music is that they've always done exactly what the fuck they've wanted to do. Mm -hmm. And it didn't involve trend and it didn't involve, you know, uh, genre necessarily. Uh, they, they, you know, there was a time where they did load and people were like, oh, they're hopping on the alternative bandwagon. But I don't think they did. I think they, they had done every great thrash album that had been released to that point. Mm -hmm. And then the Black Album, you know, which is your four to the floor, amazing hard rock metal album which sells 12 million copies. And where do you go from there? Where do you go from there? Yeah. So, yeah. you know, they, they were able to grow and develop and explore different things. And, and, and I thought them working with Lou Reed was awesome. It, it didn't sound good. Uh, you know, unfortunately, I don't think they had the time to put into the project that could have made it great. So I can't listen to it. I don't like it, but I love that they did it. Mm -hmm. And they've always, they've, you know, they've always been that way. Yeah, I, I talked about, uh, uh, not Reload, um, St. Anger before. Mm -hmm. And everybody considers this this abortion of an album. And it's hard to listen to. And the drums do sound like trash cans being mm -hmm. hit. And James, isn't, vocals are not in tune. And there are no guitar solos. But I think, I still think it's a piece of art. Because mm -hmm. the way they edited and the things they did were very different, especially for them. So, I mean, I've, I've always respected that they've just gone out. They did this crazy-ass 3D movie that didn't mm -hmm. come close to making back the money that uh, they put into it. And then they do this uh, tell-all documentary that kind of make them look like, you could argue that, that uh, they look like not such... God, I don't even know the way to put it because I don't want to be disrespectful, but it's a great, you know, some kind of monster is a great documentary of a band that is not getting along mm -hmm. and they're overindulged and uh, they're having problems with booze and whatever, divorces and, you know, the person they've hired to, to counsel them through this all suddenly wants to be in the band. It's just a really um, a visionary, I think, project. And they let it all ha they let it all go through. You know, they had final approval on on that film. I, I believe. I mean, you know, I, I know that Berlinger worked with them. On I think it was Berlinger, right? Um, yeah, I know Berlinger. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, you know, the Lars would never let anything. I mean, he his his control. I don't think they ever would have let something yeah. go go out if he didn't have a hand in it. But it's funny the Lars thing. But that circles back around to the Scott Ian book. The quote of his or the story of his that got a lot of got some press and got a lot of notice. Uh, was the him telling the story of how Cliff and uh, and Kirk said to him, "We're about to kick Lars out of the band." That right. was I had never heard that story before. No, like the, I hadn't so that that you must have been like, "Whoa, really? Are you they really? They were about to kick Lars out of this band? Like that's that was kind of earth could it would have been earth shaking news in the metal community at that time had that happened." Right, right. And the thing that prevented it from happening tragically was Cliff's death. It was Cliff's death. And they yeah. said, there's no way we can do this after, after this, it would just tear the whole band apart. 
and uh, then they managed to, you know, mend their differences and 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 uh, keep it together. But but that band has always been a really interesting clash of personalities that has created this this tension and this friction and this this fantastic music. And it's because and they all recognize their 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 weaknesses. You know, James will say, "I'm not the best singer in the world," but no one else is singing in the band, so I'm doing it. Mm-hmm. And uh, Lars, although he's evolved into a hell of a drummer, there was a time where you know he was winging it. He just uh, in the beginning he didn't know how to play really, mm-hmm. but he was very punk rock DIY kind of. Yeah. I just I want to do this, man. Yep. Um, so I, I you know well, they're the greats. I- yeah, well, I'll, I'm gonna I'm gonna ask you. Uh, this is gonna be my last question, but it's a two part question. Um, so this is my two part question: your favorite music autobiography that you didn't write. So, what music autobiography, band autobiography, have you read that you like the most that you didn't write? So, we'll just say yours are are the best. But let's say if if it's not one of yours, which one do you like the most? I can't say one of mine. <laughs> so, um, which and then the other part is if you could write any autobiography, whose would it be? Oh, wow. Um, I, I can answer that with a, oh, poor me, the second question. Um, I always wanted to write Rob Halford's book. Mm. Man, I talked to him about it. You know, he was a big part of Louder Than Hell. He did one of our, our uh, intros. I think it was the outro. I've interviewed him almost every album. We've always had a really good journalist, you know, artist relationship. And his management sure knew that I wanted to do, you know, because I'd originally been in there running for that Judas Priest book when they were thinking of one. Mm-hmm. I'm like, Rob, you, you know, he mentioned he's, he wants to write a book. I'm like, please keep me in mind. That's all I'm, I don't nag, I don't want to be a nag, but man, it would be an honor if I could work with you on this. He's like, yeah, you know, John, you're a great writer. And, you know, I'll, I'll certainly, you know, I'll certainly look at that, that as an option. And we're, we're, we're just in the beginning phases now, you know, we're, we're, so I, I, you know, laid off of it for a long time. And then I read in the press, that uh, he was doing it with his fellow Ian Giddings, who was a writing writer for Melody Maker. <laughs> where oh I'd my God, written of all places, for, right? <laughs> years ago, but he, you know, he was writing good stuff for them then. And uh, when I first got the book, I've got to admit, I started reading, I'm like, this sucks. I could have done better than this. But then I, I read it cover to cover and man, it is so revealing mm-hmm. and so honest and forthright. And for Rob to have been that gutsy I mean, everybody knows he's the gay icon of metal mm-hmm. and they open the doors for tons of people and that's great. And, you know, I didn't care when he came out, but I was never homophobic. And a lot of the metal community, at least in the 80s, was. Was, yeah. yeah. Come the 90s, I think people grew up a bit more and, and culture changed, you know, mm-hmm. and now everything's LGBTQ. So it's all it's all good. But reading that book, his honesty and and his confessions of of the things that he was doing to have some sort of companionship you know be it in bathhouses or uh with people he'd pick up from the advocate paper or or whatever is just you know it's sad because he should have been with the love of his life like everyone wants to be Mm -hmm. but he he couldn't he couldn't have come out at the time and uh, he still wanted to have some of these experiences, you know, these sexual experiences. And it was very, it was torturous for him to be, to be the frontman from Judas Priest and a closeted gay man. And it comes across in this book beautifully without being whiny or, or uh, 
like a you poor know. me what was me kind of thing. yeah so yeah. so no I, I bet it's funny that's that's my 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 greatest uh joy would have been to work with rob on that book not of course i'd love to do you know metallica's book but th that'll never it won't be me if it happens um i'm sure they'll work with a kingpin of of the the writing industry maybe not even a, a music journalist mm, who knows right. but uh the best book I read, and, and it's, it's just really because of the time I read it, you know, has got to be Hammer of the Gods. Mm. You know, the Stephen Davis book on Led Zeppelin, mm. just, it opened the world for me of, first of all, what the fuck is going on in this crazy world of rock and roll? Mm. As a teenager reading that, uh, I was blown away. And this band I loved, I've learned so much about. And uh, I thought, wow, this would, this would be an incredible thing to do for a living. I wonder, you know, anybody who does this, who gets to write about bands must be so rich. <laughs> <laughs> I also, I also think any band that has a record out, they must be sitting pretty. Yeah. Or Boy, those were two of the greatest misconceptions I've had in my <laughs> yeah, life. Yeah, right. Also that writers who make books are also uh, doing well. <laughs> but yeah. It's, uh, it's a crazy industry. And uh, it's, it's, you know, I've, I've had a lot of great experiences. It's been a trip. Yeah, well, and, and congratulations to you on, on building a career out of it. Absolutely appreciate the time, John. A pleasure to talk to you and I uh, hope you enjoy the podcast when it comes out. Yeah, I had a great time. Thanks for, uh, thanks for thinking of me for this. It was, it was a lot of fun. Great. Thank you, John, so much. Take care. You too, Dave. That concludes this episode of the Into the Void Music Podcast. For more information about Into the Void, visit their Facebook page or email IntoTheVoidMusicPod at gmail.com. Into the Void is Dave Manick, Lord Gates, Wild Bill, and J-Man, and is produced by Dave Manick for Manic Panic Media. We'll see you next time as we venture Into the Void. Into the Void.